0: Hello. Welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government.
1: Good afternoon from LA Air Force Base, PA Studio. This is uh, Blue Grid Podcast, Anya Fedotova, episode 19. Uh, today I'm here with B.J. Lang, who is a medically retired United States Air Force Reserve medic. He is a two times testicular cancer survivor who serves as a comedy coach for the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program. Welcome to the Blue Grid Podcast. Thank you so much for coming out.
2: Thank you for having me. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, Very, uh, very uh, cool to be here.
1: So you retired from the Air Force, tell us a little bit about your Air Force career.
2: I did. Unfortunately my career is uh, very long-winded as I am a retired A1C, so you can see I got very far in my career before unfortunately getting diagnosed with cancer. Um, in February of 2015 I enlisted into the Air Force Reserve. Uh, I always wanted to serve, obviously come from a military family and all that good stuff that I'm sure people can relate to. and. I'm an actor professionally, so went to school for theater, uh, toured around, did comedy and, and shows and whatnot, and obviously film, TV commercials. And on my 35th birthday, I figured I better do this before it's too late. I'm going to enlist in the Air Force Reserve, knowing that I could never go active duty. I was just too busy with my civilian acting career, but I I didn't want to look back and wish I had done something, so I enlisted on my 35th birthday uh, right here, actually, at LA Air Force Base. So... so. Uh, it's kind of bittersweet to be walking through here. I enlisted and went off to basic and, and, uh, became a medic. And then in July of 2015, I picked up orders to go down to Fort Sam Houston. I worked as a medic down there and in the middle of my orders, I got diagnosed with cancer. So it was a very hard time because on one hand I had this new diagnosis, but I wanted to continue to serve. And I just now got started in my career here in this new thing that I was so proud of and went through a medical evaluation board at Fort Sam Houston, uh, well, Lackland at that point, and then got medically retired in July of 2016. July 2016, I got put on TDRL status. So I'm currently on temporary disability retirement list with the hope of returning. And last year, they reevaluated me in January, actually, to see if I could return to duty, which was my hope for a long time. But unfortunately, I had relapsed uh, that summer before. So the Air Force saw that. They saw that I was still sick. Unfortunately, the cancer had metastasized into my lymph nodes, and they put me back on temporary medical retirement. So here's where I am. I've been here on TDRL for, in July, it'll be, I guess, three years here on the 28th. So pretty soon.
1: And you just had an appointment?
2: I did, I had a follow-up CT scan. Uh, This was, so for clarity's sake, just so that you can kind of follow my timeline here. My diagnosis was September of 2015. I noticed that my left testicle was getting large. And like probably most guard and reserve uh, folks who get put on orders, you're like, I'm on active duty. I'm going to get all my medical stuff taken care of because as a guard and reservist, you pay for,
3: Mm -hmm. you're
2: paying for your TRICARE visits if you go to the docs. I'm going to go across the street here, get looked at. and. They told me what it was, and I had surgery, and then I went through chemotherapy in December of 2015. Went back, was working on my orders, was weeks away from coming home, and going back to my unit at March Air Reserve Base in Riverside, California. Unfortunately, they were like, you're stuck. You got to go through a med board. So I went through my med board. That started in May of 2016, and then my orders dropped towards the end of June after losing my informal board. They put me on temporary retirement, so that was July 28th of 2016. I was home for about a year. I was getting into the VA system, which is uh, interesting, especially having worked medical and seeing things a little bit different from active duty military. I went through getting established and my care coordinated through the VA. About a year after I was home, so July of 2017, I had my one year CT scan just to make sure everything was good and they said no it came back so it was in my lymph nodes and I had to do radiation and the second time in my opinion affected me certainly more mentally than physically when I was diagnosed again Um, so then I I did that and then in January of 2019 just this past January was my next reevaluation For the TDRL office, for them to determine if I could return. And like I said, they put me back on temporary retirement. So here I am. Now I'm on the old five year plan for TDRL, which is you could be on it for up to five years, uh, which is exhausting to say the least, being here. But now it's three years. So I would venture to say next year, now that I just got a clean scan, just a few days ago, July 3rd, I went to get my next CT scan. So this will officially almost put me at my two year mark in remission. I cannot even tell you how happy I was. To hear the results. Yeah, I mean, well, I was so scared to even log into my account to see, do I want to do this? And I was biting my fingernails thinking about it. And of course I had anxiety. And I still continue to have anxiety thinking about that. Yeah. But I logged in, saw that it was good. And whoosh, there we go. What's next? The question now is, what's going to happen? Am I going to be allowed to return to duty? Am I going to be put on temporary? Are they going to separate me with severance? You know, uh, are they going to put me back on temporary retirement? And I should mention, before I get any further, that immediately when I was placed on the morning casualty report list because of my diagnosis, whatever they... I forgot what the, the commanders call that, where you are listed as critically wounded, ill, or injured in the line of duty... I was enrolled into the air force's wounded warrior program. I didn't know that at the time because I was going through my board and then, you know, transitioning out, uh, very fast and was very heartbroken. But in July of 2016, right after I came home, I got a call from the air force's wounded warrior program, not to be confused with the wounded warrior project. This is the air force's wounded warrior program, and you should check it out at woundedwarrior.af.mil. And I got enrolled in that program, and then this is really where, especially with military and progress and understanding what happened to me and people that are like me, that was where a lot of changes happened, being in the program.
1: Okay. I want to come back to this topic, but sure. before we continue with the wounded Warrior program, I want to ask you questions about your diagnosis and what sure. was it like to hear the diagnosis for the first time.
2: Yeah. So here I am, 35 years old in the best shape of my life, unbelievably proud to be an Air Force medic. I was very proud of myself. I'm one of those people and I guess my degree is in theater and you know, I kind of use a lot of my left brain, very creative. I'm a Second City alum, do a lot of improv comedy. And my whole life I dip my fingers in a lot of things. I do a lot, I don't just have a nine to five. I never had just a nine to five. I was always doing many things. So for me to go through and become a medic was so important to me and it gave me a new identity and I was so proud. So here I am now 35, never had surgery in my life, never had done anything. So I went to the clinic and the PA that was there who was palpating me, who was examining giving the physical exam was a female. So I had to have a male chaperone in the room. And this salty army medic who's sitting in the corner, who clearly has no interest in observing this PA basically on his phone, kind of just playing on his phone and mm-hmm. then looking, making sure she's doing what she's supposed to be. doing, And then he just looks over, sees me, drop my trousers, notices how big my testicle was, my left testicle, and was like, without missing a beat, just kind of glances over. In the same tone that you could tell he was reading his emails, he goes, wow, that's a big ball, and went right back to work like it was nothing. So that's when I knew something was wrong, and then that you know, started a whole work up, and had, um, went to Fort Sam Houston, talked to the chief urologist there, who also did an exam, and goes, that's going to come out. And so I said in my mind, I'm like, cool. Well, I'm doing some training right now. So maybe in like two weeks, we'll schedule it up. Like I'll have a break in my training and then we can do the surgery. Right. Yeah. And he goes, no, this is going to happen right now. And I went, okay. I had 24 hours. I'm not just going to lay here in this room. Like I got to take advantage of this opportunity. So I went and got my books, came back, so at that surgery. point,
1: did you know that you have like did anybody I, no, say zero
2: cancer? zero? I mean, everyone was saying, and the doctor was saying, like there's tumor. It's, it's it's most likely a tumor. I mean, you could tell from the ultrasound that it was. By the way, let me just. I think this is because the comedian in me is always trying to find the unusual thing. Mm-hmm. So when I got my ultrasound and I read the report, and this is before I went to the urologist's office, I read the report and it said left testicle is the size of a small orange, okay? First of all, is that a scientific, like, is that an actual measurement? So at this time, I had not completed my nursing portion of my medic program. Mm -hmm. So I hadn't learned all the nursing terminology yet. So it said left testicle is the size of a small orange, right testicle remains unremarkable. And then I was offended. I was like... How do you know what my testicles have been through? <laughs> so anyway, so then I go to the, so I'm, I'm there in the urologist office. Um, I'm a lifelong learner. I've always tried to help other people by learning and sharing experiences. And obviously I was a, a, a med tech student, so I, I had to learn myself. So when the chief urologist there at SAMSE San Antonio Military Medical Center, was palpating me. And he knew most likely that it was cancer. That's what he said. He's like, I've seen so many. I can't, I I don't know if it is for sure, but most likely it is. You can live with one. And of course I was like, well, can you, uh, can we do a biopsy just to make sure that it is cancer? He goes, we could, but it, it could possibly spread. That was the first time, like I even thought the idea that this could go systemic or, you know, something else but he goes Meaning that he,
1: you didn't have time at that point right like I'm i didn't this yeah. is time sensitive
2: he was like yes this is going to happen soon yeah but because i was because this is the teaching hospital and because i understand that people need to to learn he goes airman lang do you mind if i bring in some brand new lieutenants who are getting their specialization in urology and i went yeah sure like of course by all means you know and i'm let me be clear, like, I'm 35 years old, like, I understand. So, I, it wasn't too uncomfortable for me. Yeah. And this room, it, within five minutes, lined up with all these mm-hmm. brand new lieutenants. I mean, like, mm-hmm. there must have been 20 of them. I'm not, mm-hmm. and they all took turns to, like, to understand it. Oh, God. It was, it was a good experience yeah, <laughs> for, for them. For them. Um, but he goes, he goes from the other <laughs> side of the room. He goes, Airman Lang, how you doing? I said, sir, with all due respect, this is the most excitement I had since basic training. Like, this but it was a good, it was a good learning experience. And hopefully that experience though will help save someone else's life. So I had surgery the next day. This was also where I soon learned how to be my own advocate. I have trust in the military. I have trust in my supervisors. I have, tr- I have a lot of trust in the system. I did have a lot of trust. I also had to fortify the fact that when you're sick or when you really truly need something, you need to make sure that you're your own advocate. This is where a change happened in me, not only because I'm a cancer survivor and not only because one of the most valuable things I learned in my nursing program was advocacy, to be an advocate for other people. But you really need to be an advocate for yourself, and that's why I try to tell people you need to understand what you're going through and what you need so that you can take care of yourself, but really you might be able to take care of someone else. When I had surgery, a lot of new experiences obviously happened. And then when I went through chemotherapy and and I got sick and my active duty, the unit that I was with was fantastic. And my commander was a nurse, so he was very understanding. He went with me actually when I got my diagnosis and I'll be honest with you, it was no big deal. I didn't think that much about it. I didn't care. It was no big deal that at that time I was diagnosed, caught early, Mm -hmm. testicular cancer, no big deal. I had my left testicle removed, had a left radical orchiectomy. I had to make a choice, by the way, and this was kind of challenging for me. I had to determine whether I wanted to do radiation or I wanted to do chemo or if I wanted to do nothing because I was at a stage where – it was kind of my choice, and what do I want to do? And I mean, I had to take weeks and think about it. They wanted to get it going soon, obviously, so it doesn't spread. And I chose to do chemotherapy because it had better outcomes. Right. So I did that in December of 2015, and then I returned. But it was no big deal. I went back. I got off profile. I was back in. And it was really not that big of a deal at that time. Yeah. What really started to affect me was when they said, hey, you have to go through a med board. I never even heard of a med board, didn't know what it was, didn't know what that extent is like, and to anyone that's listening or knows a troop that might be going through one, for me, and I would imagine for most of the people that have been through it, it is one of the most exhausting things I have ever done, mentally exhausting. Mm -hmm so on one hand you had cancer right like i had it and i was in remission and it wasn't even a year yet i'm going through this board and you start thinking well i i worked so hard to start this military career right you know part-time granted but i really wanted to continue this and then you think well maybe i am sick and then you think no, it's it's no big deal. Like I here, I am getting you know 90s on my PT test for a 35 year old. Knock it off. Come on, you gotta give me cut, cut me some slack here. And it started making me wonder, am I really this sick or, or or what? And more importantly, and this is the first time where you feel you don't have control mm-hmm. of what's going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. And this was both when my cancer relapsed, which I'll get to in a second, but. In this moment, I didn't have any control on my future. Right. It was up to the, this board you know, that is going to read some narrative that the doctor wrote, which I wrote against, obviously, in my informal board, and then went to the, to the next step. I felt I couldn't do anything. There was nothing I could do. I was literally sitting there not able to do anything, which led to the first time. I always tell people it was the first time I really felt in my adult life that I was mentally circling a drain. You know, there, I just, I felt hopeless. And I got really sad and I was depressed. And it was worse than obviously getting a cancer diagnosis because at right. that point, like I had so much trust in the military and I'm like, I'm gonna be fine. And you know, my doctors are great and all this stuff. and
1: So what was it specifically about the medical boards?
2: I think it was the inability to have control. Like I felt like I didn't have a lot of control. That somebody
1: on- else would be writing and making decisions
3: Yes. For you?
2: And so obviously here I am as someone who is new, I'm an E3. I didn't feel that I had a lot of say in what happens to me, but I also knew as a, you know, and I was older, so I immediately got letters of recommendations and I was my class leader in my medic program. And so like I had some good documentation and I called my home unit back here and they were trying to help me out. But at the end of the day, it really didn't help any. And then I determined, okay, well, they put me on temporary retirement. Let me just get back into my regularly scheduled life because here I am now. I have a professional career in Hollywood, and I need to just kind of dip back into that. And then maybe next year when they reevaluate me, I'll be allowed to return to the reserve and continue on my path. Unfortunately, a year and a half later, I was diagnosed with a relapse and
1: And what was that like?
2: So this is really where the hardest parts of my situation hit me. First of all, let me just kind of set the table here and walk you through what it's like. I came home in July of 2016, July, 2016. I entered medical retirement, which is weird. Anyways, let's just talk about that. I'm an E3 and I'm retired. That's weird, okay? Tell me about
1: the weird, what do you mean by
2: that? I I didn't do 20 years. I never got the opportunity to deploy. I never got the opportunity to really go and truly do the job that I trained to do. That still affects me today. Those thoughts still hurt me today. Like I still think about it. I understand that there was nothing I could have done, like it wasn't me, I didn't choose to get cancer, Mm -hmm. but that stuff really, that hurts. I mean, there's a big part of me that's like, if someone could walk in here and say, We'll take you back. As long as I can go and do my job, hopefully if I can mm-hmm. go do aeromedical evacuation and follow that as a medic and do the job that I trained to. I didn't even want to be a medic, okay? So like, I didn't even want to be a medic, but I fell in love with it and I've always been of service. So like that, that to help other people has been mm-hmm. so important. And You can understand, you know, you, you, as a psychologist, you know, you're helping people, but here I am and I'm home And I came home different than when I left. It's not like I came home and went, okay, right back into auditions. Of course, I worked my way back up. I was teaching part-time at a high school teaching theater down in Orange County, California. And I was getting into the VA system. I was navigating now TRICARE and figuring out, okay, well, who's going to take care of me now? Because I'm not even a year in remission at this point. Like, who's going to take care of my, Mm -hmm. in case my cancer comes back? Which for the longest time... I was upset at the Air Force. I was upset at the military because I felt that they didn't really care because I was a nobody. That's At first, that's what I thought. And I didn't understand this dumb temporary medical retirement thing. But in the long run, especially since I relapsed, I understood the reason why they do that is because you're sick. In case it comes back, you still have access to stuff. Mm-hmm. Who knows what the future is about being able to return, but obviously that is a big Part of me that still wants to return. Here I am now back home and I'm trying to understand where I'm going to go in the future and how I'm going to get back into my acting life. And then when I relapsed, I was very scared. I looked at the scan and I understand it wasn't like it metastasized all over my brain or anything. The fact that they tell you it's back and you have to do radiation because the first time I did chemo, I got more sick on the radiation because of where they targeted me in my lower abdomen and my lymphatic system there. Cause that's where it came back. I was throwing up every day and my mind started racing
3: mm-hmm.
2: and there was nothing you could do or tell me like all my doctors like of all the cancers, you got the best one, like testicular cancer. It's so great. Like, yes, I understand. Statistically speaking, it is the best cancer to get, but the point is y- you still got cancer, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So that was...
1: And you still have the symptoms and you're young.
2: Right. And you're sick. Right. I did my radiation. So first of all, doing chemo, and I got a little sick on that, but not anywhere near how sick I got when I did radiation. Mm -hmm. But the chemo has its own adverse side effects Mm -hmm. and possibly future side effects that are still to be unknown because the drug is still rather new. And radiation has its side effects. So one of the side effects possibly of radiation or chemo is cancer. So great. You're going to give me something that like might mm-hmm. possibly. And then they were like, hey, you had so much radiation that in a couple of years, you might have kidney failure. You might have liver issues. Like we're going to try. And they were, they were showing me the physics and all that and how they did the CT simulation to target where the radiation is going to go. But when, let me tell you, when you're laying on that table for eight minutes a day, For, I did 28 days straight, nonstop. And this thing is blasting you with radiation. And you don't feel it at first. I mean, then you start noticing that you're, like, my back started burning. And your skin starts burning a little bit and getting dry. You're thinking, even though you can't see it, you know something's going on. That starts to eat at you. The hardest part of having cancer, period, of any level, and my buddy told me this. He's another... Testicular cancer survivor. He said the worst part about cancer is knowing that you had cancer
3: mm.
2: What do I mean by that? That means every time something hurts in your body you immediately think you've cancer cancer? Yeah, right yeah. every time I go to the doctor and I get a lab Holy crap, it's gonna it, it's gonna be bad It's gonna be my mind at night would just race and this is really where I knew clinically speaking, I was not in the right mindset. I couldn't sleep. I'm gaining weight. I'm biting my fingernails. And naturally, just by virtue of all the stuff that had happened previously, getting put on TDRL, going through a cancer diagnosis in the first, like, I could understand some anxiety, but I handle stress generally really well but when I couldn't sleep or if I would fall asleep after laying in bed for two and a half hours, you know, most nights and then wake up to use the restroom and can't fall back asleep. Something's not right. Cause my mind would start racing mm-hmm. and I'm getting heated and I'm getting agitated. My doctor at the VA said, Mr. Lang, you're, you're gaining a lot of weight. And I said, I'm scared. Like, and she knew like, I'm going through treatments and all that stuff. And she said, "Well, why don't you go upstairs and see mental health?" I I literally laughed. That's not going to happen, you know. And And why was that
1: a laughable idea at the
2: time? I think this is going to sound so cliche, and it sounds so stupid in retrospect because I wish I can go back and talk to myself then. But I'm a man. I was in the military. I worked medical. I'm okay, I don't need to go see the mental health. That's literally what I thought. And I love my primary at the VA, she's amazing. My primary care physician. And she said, for me, just go up there and talk to them. And I said, okay. I went up there. Now obviously they knew, because they have all my medical records and all that stuff. And side note, I had already had some stuff as a service connected Uh, issue uh, with mental health, but I had never gone to the clinic at this point to go see anyone for any sort of care. And I walked in the office and the psychologist that was there, she introduced herself and she said, I'm going to do the intake. It's not going to take very long. I just, just so I know where to put you. And she said, what's going on? She said, I see you have cancer. I see. And like, I just, I broke down and it was, I was scared on one hand because I knew that I needed help. But there was also another big part of me that said, whatever I tell these doctors is gonna end up on my medical report and the Air Force is gonna look at this and then they're not gonna let me back in. When I, I didn't tell them about my neuropathy when I was going through chemo the first time when I was on active orders. I didn't tell them about hitting my head really hard when I fell off this 10 foot pull up bar upside down, fracturing my left wrist and two middle fingers. I told them it was a yoga Mistake. I mean, because I didn't want to get kicked out, and yet look at what still happened. So here I am crying in the office, and and I wipe my tears away, and I said, but I'm okay. I'm totally going to be fine. I'm going to be, I'm fine. I just, I'm going through a lot. And she goes, Mr. Lang, I don't think that you're fine. I think that you are dealing with a lot of cancer and other side effects. It's not just the cancer. Like, I was dealing with a lot of pain that I had, nerve damage, and, new ailments from side effects that were starting to eat at me from all the, all these side effects like hearing loss it's no big deal but you're thinking damn i am i am messed up i got my fingers and, and my toes tingle you know and i got nerve damage through my left side and i'm having migraines now and i never had migraines and she goes i just think you have a lot going on and i think you have major de- depressive disorder And I went, okay. And then she referred me out and I started seeing this other provider because of a lot of your side effects. I think you have a lot of post-traumatic stress issues in dealing with your cancer. At that time, I didn't really understand it because first of all, when you see any kind of provider and they're telling you all this stuff, you almost don't want to hear it because you don't want to hear that you're sick. Mm -hmm. You don't want to hear how sick you are or because in my mind I'm I'm fine. Mm-hmm. You know, but then you start hearing this and there's a part of you that's like I don't want to believe this. How do I have post traumatic stress? I didn't get blown up in combat. I didn't get hurt on the job. I got cancer. It was a lot of the psychological trauma I think that came from getting so close to a brush with mortality. <laughs> let me just set your listeners up here. So I had been home for a year. I went in to get my CT scan for a year being home at the VA. And then that's when they told me that it was back. And I was dating a girl finally. I hadn't dated anyone since before I took those orders, almost two and a half years since I had even been on a date. I didn't really care too much to date because I wanted to take care of myself. And I was dating this woman who I was really crazy about. I told her I was gone for an Air Force Wounded Warrior event. That's when I got notified, hey, your cancer came back. Like My primary called me, my oncologist called me, my radiation oncologist, my hematology oncologist called me, and I was starting to get a little nervous. And I said, hey, they told me my cancer came back, and I'm going to start radiation. She's like, oh, my God, I'm going to be there for you. We're going to do treatments together. So I was like, cool. And so I I took her on a trip before I started treatments because I didn't know how sick I was going to get. We started treatments, and then two weeks into my treatments, this is a true story, I threw up on her shoes, and the next day she stopped seeing me. Now, in all fairness, they were very nice shoes. I just think the cancer was really hard for her to deal with, and she split. But that also made me feel like, holy crap, Mm. I really am sick. I can't even have a relationship. And then a week later, I got let go from my part-time job of 12 years, because I was on disability too long while I was going through treatments. I lost my job that I had. Everything just started falling apart. It was just one thing after another. I know you said you haven't dated anybody for two and a half years prior to this,
1: and I imagine something like a testicular cancer can really impact your self-esteem, your... Yes. Confidence in dating. Sure. And so now you're losing this relationship, you haven't dated anybody, and you, you're fired from your job. Yeah. Where you in, in your heart and your mind? What's going on?
2: So my relapse was compounded. My first diagnosis, everything just seemed normal, ebb and flow. Okay, this sucks. Do this. You'll be good. And mm-hmm. it evened out.
1: Yeah. So there's but, a kind of a sense of predictability.
2: Yes. Yeah. If I took that starting point to where all this stuff initially happened, and then I went to where I am now with this cancer relapse, everything compressed and it put me in a different mindset. I felt depressed. That's what it was. I was scared to date people at first because there's a little bit of, and I understand everyone listening is probably like, you lost a testicle. No big deal. I understand that. I totally get that. My mom's had a great quote She's like, no one cares about one testicle. Like no girl, no girl in her right mind cares. I understand that. I totally get that. However, my mind always goes, and I was talking to some breast cancer survivors and it's the exact same feeling. It's not what they say to me if someone were to notice that I only had one, if we were getting intimate or whatever like that. It's what my mind thinks that they will think.
3: And
1: what do they think?
2: I had body imaging issues, aside from gaining weight obviously from being depressed, but even prior to that, Body imaging issues was a big deal. My left side of my thigh still to this day because of the surgery and they hit a nerve is messed up between all the radiation affecting my nerves. I was diagnosed with erectile dysfunction. That was just getting that diagnosis. That's not fun, you know, for a guy. And then loss of a testicle and my body's trying to compensate. So I had low testosterone. So you have to try to deal with that. So there's a lot of parts that are eaten away at you that take away being, I'm not going to say a man, but just who I was. Now I had to get used to this new normal and what this new normal is.
1: As you were going through these really difficult times and almost your identity has been... Taken away. Taken away or changing, yeah. what did you do? How did you cope?
2: I think what really helped me in understanding my identity again, was proof that I'm still here, that I am still strong, and that I can still continue to help people in other ways. And while I'm telling you all this unfortunate stuff that happened to me, there are so many positive things that have come out of this which were unintentional, kind of like a Zen gift in a way. The biggest multiplier of my positives was being enrolled in the Air Force's Wounded Warrior Program. Right when I came home, I got enrolled in this program, and the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program does adaptive sports, so they show you what you can do with sports to help you, and that made me feel strong again and proud. And, okay, running isn't that great for my body anymore because of the nerve damage, but now I can swim. Now I can get in a recumbent bicycle and The hope was always to go to the Air Force Trials at Nellis Air Force Base and then get on the team to represent at Warrior Games and compete against all the other military folks that are there from the other branches and then with the hopes of going to the Invictus Games. And I was in the program starting in July of 2016, and I immediately said, this is awesome, and I could be helping so many other people. So I did their ambassador program so I can go around and share my story and how the program helped me thus raising awareness for the program and then i became a mentor in the program so when new airmen come in the program i can take them under my wing and show them what this program is and it's not just adaptive sports they have resiliency programs at night and this is really where i started to see that there's some good positives here and that i feel even though these sports are amazing and i and unfortunately, I was on the high performance track to, to be able to go and compete. But when I relapsed, my doctor at the VA wouldn't fill out my paperwork for me to compete because she thought I was too sick. And that's a whole nother story because my oncologist was like, you should have talked to me. But I just I kind of let that go. But once again, a blessing in disguise. So I didn't get to go to trials and compete. But what did happen was. I got more involved in the resiliency programs that the Air Force program has. And so at night at these care events that they do around the country, they have music and the former lead guitarist of Korn, a guy named Wes Gear, runs a nonprofit called Rock to Recovery. And Rock to Recovery comes to these events and they teach how to use music as therapy. So they do music therapy. They had stand-up comedy at the time. They had writing and creative writing and journaling and Painting so all these cool things that you could have just something as a tool To maybe that you enjoy and, and, and use towards resiliency and I kept thinking about that and going BJ in the civilian world. This is what you do. I teach improv comedy at the second city
3: mm-hmm.
2: and Perform improv and it has been my cathartic tool since college. Why don't I? try to do it? so I got in with the resiliency program and I pitched the idea of me coming in to teach improv comedy and sent the curriculum to um, Dr. Moffitt, who's the sports psychologist, who's also the resiliency program manager. And he goes, absolutely, like, let's get you in here. In July of 2018, a year ago from right now, I went to do my first test. It was a whole mm. test and
3: mm-hmm.
2: people loved it and it was amazing. So now I use improv comedy as a healing tool and I've been going out to all these events and even though I didn't get to go to Warrior Games as an athlete, and who knows, maybe next year, we'll, we'll see. I think that I have found a more important way for me to serve and, and to help people to use improv comedy.
1: In one of the interviews, you stated mm-hmm. there is another story, one that is not immediately obvious. And you were portraying yourself on your Facebook as a resilient individual radiating positivity yeah. and rooting for resiliency or grit. Yeah. But then you stated what hides behind this is I absolutely deal with fear. Is that what you said? Yep. And you described so well the moment when you now relapse, you lost a job, you weren't in the relationship, then throw up on the shoes and the breakup. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're in a really bad spot, yeah? Mm-hmm. I wanted to know, what is the mental shift? What do you say to yourself? What happens? At which point do you decide that you need to do something differently? Because whatever you're doing isn't working. Because I hear what you're saying. You got enrolled in the Wounded Warrior program and started helping out. What I want to know is mentally what happens between everything is falling apart to I'm going to find a way to get out of this.
3: Hmm.
2: Well, the first part of your question, how do I deal with on the outside, like if you go to my social media, you know, and I'm an actor, so it's pretty easy to find my stuff. In light of the last two years, people have connected with my story. And it doesn't have to be testicular cancer. People connect because I'm pretty open about how my depression has affected me or getting different diagnoses if you go to my social media, you see me as someone who is very outgoing, enthusiastic and all that. But I, I try to be honest without being overbearing to the audience about how depressed I, I mean, and it, like, l- let me tell you, even though I'm sitting here and like, I just got good news. Yeah. Uh, it's not like I just go home and like, I'm amazing now. Like, no, I still have a ton of fear. And still depressed i'm still not where i want to be and i still don't know a lot of what's going to happen Uh, there's still a lot of fears can i have kids will i have kids will i ever get married all of these things which really are rooted from my cancer diagnosis one thing i want to say is that i i feel that when people were messaging me and they saw these stories that i'm sharing And they saw how open I was about it. It really connected with people, and I felt like I was being of service in that regard. And people were using this to live vicariously through me, and that's great. But you are right. I was very down. I was very behind the scenes, like turn the lights off and like talk to me. And here I am, especially up until last year. Like I'm stressing out, going to eat donuts, feeling hopeless and not doing what I need to be doing. My therapist at the VA, she said this was one of the hardest days of therapy that I ever had with her. And she, she specializes in people who have chronic illness and terminal disease. So a lot of the things that she knows that I think about, she totally gets it, which, well, I'm sure you're familiar as a psychologist um she held up a card and it said happiness and she said don't say anything just look at these cards she held up another one and it said service she held up another one and said loyalty she held up another one and, you know all these different like traits mm-hmm. and when she held up the one that said service like i ju- i just i couldn't control myself and i just started crying she said what's the matter and i said i feel that i can't be of service on one regard In my military career, I can't do what I want to do. And I feel that I'm not that strong source of inspiration that people started telling me that I was. And that was so hard. She held up another one that said patience. And I said, I know why you wrote that. And she said, why? And I said, because I am the most patient person with other people, but I'm not patient with myself. And I beat myself up you know using cancer as an excuse using anything that happened to you in your life as an excuse to not get up in the morning and go to the gym because oh your legs hurt well what did i learn from air force wounded warrior well i learned go adapt and do something different you could still do other things the biggest thing that i preach on people as a resiliency instructor that you learn from improv is to just step forward there's a famous quote from Del Clote, who we consider the godfather of modern-day improv comedy, and he said, fall, learn how to land on the way down. And that really rang true last year when for hours on hours in the morning before I would go to treatment, I didn't want to get up and get out of bed. I was terrified. I was scared. I was heartbroken.
3: Why,
1: why did you get up?
2: Well, one, because I knew I had to go take care of this cancer, but I had to taste my own medicine of go forward. Let's just see what's going to happen. It's, listen, it's really easy to sit back and say, I'm just going to, whatever happens, happens, and I'm not going to do anything and put my head in the sand. It's really easy to do that. And unless you're constantly trying to challenge yourself, then I think you will get in that mindset where you're just going to seclude. I mean, I, I still challenge myself with like, I'm, I'm nervous about dating or I don't want to put myself out there in a different way or challenge myself physically. Yeah.
1: So what I'm hearing is when I'm asking about the mental shift between feeling hopeless, mm-hmm. I'm overwhelmed, I, I have this fear that I don't know how to conquer, to taking an action. So the cognitive shift from inaction to action is hope. Is that Mm. what I'm hearing? Or maybe like making micro decisions multiple times a day that involve hope.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Am I hearing that
2: right? Well, there's certainly some hope in there. There was a long time where I had a lot of hopelessness. Yeah. I guess because of who I am or whatever I believe or... Which is what? I try to be a very positive person. I have faith in people. I have faith in... Whatever is gonna happen, mm-hmm. I hope, but it's easy to lose sight of it. So I don't know what pushed me over the line to change and what has been such a big help. Cause I always tell people right now where I am, I mean literally within the last two months, I am 50% better than where I was last year. Mm-hmm. I'm, Cause I, I still challenge, I still dealing with stuff, but I'm certainly on, I always tell, I'm on an upswing. Like I'm, I feel myself in a better position than where I was last year. And I'm just trying to do little things so that I can get back to where I was in the hopes of, well, returning to duty. But even if that doesn't happen, I have a new way of service with what I'm doing with Air Force Wounded Warrior.
1: For those service members who are struggling with difficult times, mm-hmm. what would be your suggestions for recovery of building resilience? that helped you
2: in what I teach with air force, wounded warrior and applied improvisation, it's not just one little nugget Mm -hmm. trying to, at the end of the day, ultimately I'm just trying to create some smiles and laughter therapy and have fun together. I mean, really that's the base, but the question is what are the byproducts of this process that we do, which is called improvisation that can help people and like i said step forward and learn how to fall and land on the way down get out there and try get out there and try even for me right now i know that i should go walk 2 miles walk right and then the next day try you know do some do some sprints right and then eventually i'll be where i want to be which is to be able to to run 3 miles and not have a problem where I used to be. That's like my big dream right now is to be able to run and hopefully be able to deal with the pain that I have from my hip and nerve issues. So that all comes from exactly what I teach, which is just, just try, get, give it a shot. But on a life skills standpoint and interpersonal skills communication, we focus on little things like eye contact, listening, problem solving, Mm -hmm. thinking outside the box Mm -hmm. and using improvisation, knowing that we are strong enough by ourselves, I don't have to have a script. I could improvise something and it's going to be just as beautiful as if we were going to do a Shakespeare straight play, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Knowing that you have that ability. And I think when people get that, thus they work on trust, and team building with other people, trust in themselves. These are the skills that really helped me last year when I relapsed. To say, "Hey, I need to do this." I'm on an improv team with my buddy, and we've been playing together for six, seven years. And he and I, a two-man team called Tackle Box, and I'm on a couple of other teams too. But he and I have been playing together so long. He's been through me since when I left for the military. He was with me through all of my cancer stuff, and When he and I get together and play, or anytime I play, but really with Josh, we are just two big kids having fun, and it was so hard for me last year to remember how fun that was. There was days where I'm like, I just want to cancel the show, because I'm sad, or I'm depressed, or I'm scared.
1: And you don't cancel because?
2: Well, I thought I, I didn't cancel, I guess, because, well the old actor, I mean, I guess the show must go on. But maybe there was a little bit of hope in there that says, just do it. Afterwards, you can say, I don't want to do another one. Just try to remember the fun that you had from it.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: When I go to do these Air Force Wounded Warrior events, there's oftentimes a couple of airmen who are there, who are experiencing not only the Air Force Wounded Warrior events for the first time, but who are experiencing these resiliency-specific things for the first time. For instance, most people that I teach at AFW2 have never done improv before. They may have seen Whose Line Is It Anyway on TV or Ask Cat on Bravo, but they've never gone to see a show or perform, so they don't really grasp it yet, but after a couple of workshops that we do at night, then they go, "Oh my god." Yeah. And hopefully they will say to themselves, "This is so this is so fun." Like yeah even if I suck at it, you know, for now and the more you practice, but they had so much fun that they can use that to give them hope so that they will get out of bed so that they will not cancel the show so that they will not get away from social activities and seclude myself. I, I still seclude myself a lot. Like I still, I'm just gonna, eh, you know, whatever. Or when stress, like I handle stress a little bit differently now than I did prior to cancer. And I'm still trying to to figure out what that means i'm still trying to understand it a little bit
1: this is really helpful i don't know if we're going to keep this but i want to try this <laughs> tell me so can you teach me something that you teach in your improv classes yeah can we just try what what would be sure. helpful?
2: sure well okay I,
1: I don't know if i'm a good student of improv but sure you are. I, I love sure you i are. love comedy
2: everyone can learn improv okay I teach at Second City, we have, and most theaters that are of instruction, most training centers, specialize in different improv for different people. So the general thing is most people who are studying improv want to get into acting or comedy. But a lot of people, especially when I first started teaching improv back in the Midwest, not in LA, not in New York, not in Chicago, but in St. Louis, mm-hmm. these were people that just wanted to have fun. So they, it wasn't the performance aspect of it that they were trying to do. They just were trying to engage with other people and have some sort of artistic, creative, collaborative entertainment yeah. together. Give me a sense of what it's like. Sure. But my point is everyone can learn. I didn't want you to think like, because I teach I teach kids on the weekends at Second city, yeah. I teach six year olds to eighteen and I teach adults and we have improv for seniors and yeah. I teach kids with autism and you know people that have severe anxiety and we slow everything down and make it simple to to do it so trust and know that you that you can learn um, so the first thing i w- I would say is I would play a snapping game with you and this is not going to be good for your audio listeners okay but I'm gonna I would start like this so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna catch the ball with a snap and I'm gonna throw it to you with a snap okay So I'm gonna catch it and then I'm gonna throw it to you with a snap and then I want you to catch it with a snap and then throw it to me with a snap and then I'm gonna catch it and throw it back okay and I'm gonna throw it back and I'm gonna throw it against the wall over here in the studio I'm gonna catch it and I'm gonna throw it to you. And then she's got it and it's where to it go and she caught it and she throws it back to the wall and then it, it's right? over to you. So, okay, now I'm going to catch it I'm go like that, right? <laughs> so, but non-verbally, we, so let's just imagine for a moment and you as a psychologist, you see, I would imagine a lot of patients who have a lot of high anxiety or their coping mechanism and their interpersonal skills diminish because of whatever they're dealing with. So you, you might see a lot of you know, seclusion kind of feeling and people not giving you the eye contact, which is what I'm doing right now on the mic. So I wanna build that trust back because in improv, the most important thing, aside from the main role of improv, which is what we call yes and, is for them to know that it's a safe environment. I have to build that safety, right? So then I can build from there and I need them to have comfort in themselves and in their teammates, so that they know that they can explore and fail together, and it's going to be totally fine. There's no such thing as failing, by the way, in improv. It's literally impossible to make a mistake when you improvise. If we don't have a script, how do we know we made a mistake? Mm
3: -hmm. So
2: for people that are so used to, I only go a certain Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I always tell people this. I have taught all over the world improv. I have taught actors and non-actors, but I love teaching Military folks, fellow service members, fellow veterans, and wounded warriors, because we all come from the same kind of mindset. And imagine this. Why on earth do you think the army would fly this guy to Germany to go teach army officers how to do improv comedy? Just take a guess. So this happened to me a couple of years ago. I went over to Stuttgart, Germany, and I taught army officers how to do improv. Why do you think that would be important?
1: I guess they didn't have good interpersonal skills. I don't know. Right. So, I mean,
2: that's not, that's not, that's not, the, it's not the only reason.
1: We can maybe cut that. I sure. Don't know. Sure.
2: And uh, there you go, Army. That's not the only reason. But we're guessing
1: probably to, to improve leadership skills. Like that's kind right. of ultimate well, goal. Yeah. And
2: that, so that all comes down to professional development. And I mean, I could tie, I could show you spiritual side. So for like yeah. inner resiliency using Improv in a spiritual sense. I mean, there's so many different avenues with what we call applied improvisation. So teaching improv for non-performance reasons.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. I had uh, been sent over to Germany, and I showed these Army officers who, I'm speaking in generalities, okay. In the military, regardless of your job, we are rigid. We are, I have to do it this way, and this is kind of the way it is. So... How do you how do you feel comfortable with adapting and changing things, still following the same path, but you might be doing it a different way? How do you create a creative collaborative process or an office or an environment? So right now we're in the public affairs office here at LA Air Force Base. If someone came in and said, Hey, I have an idea of a story and I'd like it to go this way and their supervisor said no every time and didn't go along with it how do you adapt and change mm-hmm. well that's kind of the benefit of what we learn in improv is the ability to adapt be comfortable with supporting one another the trust in you know supporting your team and i mean all all those things so like when i was snapping with you the first time you did it you were like apprehensive oh, okay I, mm-hmm. I got it and that mm-hmm. would right and then the more that we did it we can have fun and we start ch- changing it up and I start bouncing it off a wall mm-hmm. I mean it's it's literally that same thing and that's mm-hmm. just like the first time you got on a bike the first time you got on a bike
3: no
2: did you ride the bike and pop wheelies and no mm-hmm. you you know you're a little nervous but the more that you got comfortable with it and the more that you learned it the more you can do yeah. uh, the other thing is that improv is an ensemble art it's not something that you can you could do it by yourself, essentially doing like a monologue. But really, when you improvise with other people, mm. you don't know what the other person's going to say. So that's going to improve my listening skills to be able to take what you say to heart, and then improvise. And then you're going to listen to what I say, and you're going to add on to that. So in improv, the big rule that we say is called yes, and mm. to take the language of agreement to say yes,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and then to add information onto it. So if you said, mom, we're here at the store. First of all, I have to become mom. And then two, I have to agree that we're at the store. I couldn't say, I'm your dad and we're, we're you know out in the cornfield because that's a denial to what you just said. That would be a denial of your gift. And I need to learn how to accept that gift and go along with it at all costs, right? And then work on it. So that's a little bit about Did what- you
1: create curriculum yourself?
2: I use core curriculum that most improv places utilize and I adapted it based on resiliency, not only from my experience and what I have been going through with improv or in my recovery, I should say, and how I use improv in my resiliency. Um, but yeah, most of it was through the different schools that I went through. So I'm a I'm a Second City grad from Second City Conservatory in Hollywood, where I also run their Improv for Veterans program. I'm an Upright Citizens Brigade Theater Los Angeles alum, and I'm an alum of IO West, which is Improv Olympic. And I also studied over at Groundlings. So improv, you can say, is, is my heart and soul, and that's really where I, where I live. But the question is, how do I take this and show people who have never done improv, how can they take this and, and do it. And then someone who maybe had military sexual trauma or someone PTSD or someone who might not be able to play that snapping game because maybe Mm. they lost their arms. So how do we adapt and be able Mm. to include people and still show them, Hey, you might not have your arms anymore, whether you have prosthetics or not, but you are still able to participate and be just as a part of the ensemble as anyone else.
1: It's almost like helping somebody be alive again, kind of be lighthearted and and participating in life again. Yeah.
2: Everyone's going through stuff, right? Everyone. Everyone's going through stuff. Yeah. I was in Hawaii for Air Force Wounded Warrior. We went to Pacific PACAF in Hawaii, so we were at Pearl Harbor. And I taught evening workshops. Now, I had been out of the adaptive sports side long enough to where most people don't know me except for as the comedy coach they know me as like oh bj that he teaches these comedy classes at night we should come and it's a lot of fun um and one of this one of my previous students suggested that this new uh airman come in and i don't just teach wounded ill and injured service members but also their spouses Or their caregivers who come to the events to take care of them so that they also can benefit from the skills and that's this is the same across the board it's Mm -hmm. not just me that does this this is the same for all the resiliency instructors so this woman brought her husband and I believe he lost his leg in Afghanistan if I remember correctly anyway the first couple of days she kind of dragged him into the class you know these optional nighttime classes the first day by the way everyone comes just so i can do a quick little intro it's like a one-on-one here's what improv is come tonight if you want to learn see you tonight and then let's have some fun and we literally just play there's no no forcing of anything Mm -hmm. so he came to the first one and he, he was this guy now for the listeners i'm crossing my arms and like looking like i'm a tough guy right like so, he was like this in the super. back of the room. Oh yeah, a hundred percent, totally in the back of the room. Yeah. So he's you know upset, and he comes up and he's like, I don't know why there's comedy. Like I don't I don't I don't get it. You know, and mm-hmm. I I get it I get it because he hasn't he hasn't seen the yeah. other side of it,
3: yeah.
2: aside from like laughter therapy. Like there's so much more that what applied improv can do for you. So his wife dragged him to the nighttime workshops. By the end of the week, this. Man was rolling on the ground doing scenes, laughing up a storm, smiling ear to ear, and in my evals, we have to have an eval form filled out because, of course, it's military and you know, everyone's got to make sure we're spending our money right. But it's good because I appreciate the feedback, positive or negative. And he wrote, I haven't had this much fun since before the accident.
1: Wow. How powerful.
2: And that meant the absolute world to me. And then his wife came up to me and goes, I just want you to know that I haven't seen him smile since before he lost his leg. Mm. I may not be a medic anymore, I may not be able to put on my uniform anymore, but I can go and I can create a smile and an experience and hopefully give a nugget. I'm not saying that he's going to go and he's going to go on a sketch comedy team or try out for Saturday Night Live. Mm but maybe he'll get some little nugget that he'll be able to use in his recovery. Or maybe at the next event, he learns some of these games and and then he shows someone else and we build on that. And at the end of the day, ultimately he smiled and that my job is done. What a beautiful story, how powerful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time with us here. I'm aware of time. Is there anything that I'm, I'm not asking yeah that you feel is important to include in this interview? Hmm.
2: Thank you for not asking me super sharp questions and uh, what I mean is let me, let me be clear because that sounds really bad <laughs> that sounds really bad. Thank you not for like na- my questions yeah, weren't yeah, no no your enough. questions were great <laughs> my, my point i I'm still as a comedian, I use comedy to deflect, it's my defense mechanism. And I was a little nervous as even up until I was going into my cognitive behavioral therapy and seeing my mental health therapist at the VA, she could tell when she was asking me questions that I started getting a little nervous about and like I can feel my chest tighten cause I'm dating and future and what's gonna happen. and. Are you scared of your cancer coming back? I mean, all these kind of things that I was so nervous about. There was a big part of me that was like, I, I know that you easily could have asked those questions, and I probably would have deflected with comedy. But luckily, I was I was pretty open. So I I don't know. Thank you for uh, thank you for doing this. Obviously, this is. Well, is there important. something you want no, me to ask? No. Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I'm not asking. No. Um, hmm let me flip the table yeah why do you do this the blue grid yeah a- actually why don't i step back even further yeah, yeah you could be a psychologist and i'm guessing i don't know current rates
3: no
2: you could be making a lot more money in the civilian sector no doubt yeah okay as a provider mental health provider
3: mm.
2: so then why so then why do you do this and then how did that transcendent to you starting this podcast i think if i would have told your
1: story how you described this person who came in being closed off on his body language was clearly communicating to you that he wasn't interested in recovery yeah and happiness was lost as a result of something that happened to sure. him and you were able to make a difference in his life i think that could have been my story and techniques that i use yeah. obviously are different and they're either in therapy, in that room with a patient, whether when I'm teaching classes or when I'm doing this, which is just affecting your broader audience. And I love that it has much broader impact. I would say those, those are the very same reasons, which is service and helping others. I, I love it. I love my job. I love what I do.
2: I why, love. why Blue Grit though? Why, why did you decide to take on an extra that thing? extra
1: thing? Well, I, I love hearing stories like yours. And I love being able to communicate them to the wider audience. And I think the Air Force was missing that. That was the the element of the program that wasn't quite there. It gives me an opportunity to hear stories like you and then to air it to the rest of the service members, to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe not the rest of the world, but to at least people who are interested in hearing about grit and resilience.
2: Thank you for doing it. In closing, I wanted to say for folks to especially for those supervisors out there. But regardless, if you're listening to this podcast, just do me a favor, go to woundedwarrior.af.mil and look at what the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program is because although you may not be someone who'll be enrolled into the program, you may know someone or their caregiver who needs to be enrolled into it. And anyone can self-refer folks into the program, both active duty, guard, reserve, to utilize the benefits that they provide. It's unbelievable. On Instagram, Snapchat, at AFW2, hashtag AFW2. Just look it up and see what it's all about and support Air Force wounded warriors so that you can help others.
1: Awesome, thank you for that project. Thank you.
0: This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and grit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical, psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is annavfedotova.mail It's a-n-n-a dot v dot f-e-d-o-t-o-v dot mail at mail.